Matthew chapter 18, and I'll begin reading with verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, earth, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants heard what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we do come to this book with a sense that it is your word to us. And we recognize that this is your ordered means of grace for us. And so we ask that you would teach us this evening we pray that you would exalt Christ in our hearts and in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. In all of the Christian vocabulary, forgiveness is surely one of our very favorite words. 
Our whole hope is bound up with this wonderful word, forgiveness. We are not the kind of people who claim that we are good people. In fact, we make much of the fact that so long as you think you're a good person, this Christianity thing has nothing to do with you. We confess on our way in that we are not good people. We confess on our way in that we are sinners, that we have sinned desperately. But our great comfort is the fact that despite our sinfulness, God in grace has forgiven us. The debt of our sin, enormous though it is, has been canceled, and we stand before God owing nothing. We celebrate this every time we meet together for the Lord's Supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, we don't argue that forgiveness is the highest of Christian blessings. There are things even higher. That is, fellowship with the triune God. But in a very real sense, forgiveness is where it all starts. It's basic. And at the heart of our gospel is this glorious message that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. And we love the vocabulary of forgiveness. Forgiven. Forgiveness is represented in the Bible in several different ways. It is represented in the Bible as a removal of sin, spatially. So we read things like, God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Or we read, he has cast our sins into the sea, into the depths of the sea. Or we read things like, he has put away our sin. He has cast aside our sin, or he has cast our sins behind his back. Sometimes forgiveness is represented in terms of divine forgetfulness. I will remember your sins no more. Sometimes the scriptures use the imagery of being hidden. God has covered our sins, or our sins are blotted out. God hides his face from our sins. Sometimes the scripture uses the imagery of purification. He has purified us. He's cleansed us from our sin. He's washed us from our sins. Sometimes forgiveness is spoken of in the terms of freedom or liberation. Release from a burden. Setting free from a bondage. Sometimes the scripture uses accounting imagery. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Sometimes in the scripture, sin is portrayed, sin is portrayed as a debt, an incurred penalty. For example, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, the apostle Paul writes of those who without Christ are storing up wrath against the day of wrath. Graphic imagery, isn't it? Every sin, it's like a deposit in the bank, storing up wrath against the day of wrath. Every sin, putting a deposit in the bank, against which there will be a great withdrawal one day in the day of judgment. And so if sin in the scriptures is portrayed as an accumulating debt, very often forgiveness in the scriptures is portrayed as a canceling of the debt, a pardoning of the debt, a release from the debt. 
or as we pray, forgive us our debts. And this is part of the glory of Christian salvation. We acknowledge that we are sinners, but the glory is we are not held accountable for our sins. In Jesus Christ, we've been released from our sins. We are not held accountable, and we are set free and given boldness before God. And this is at the heart of our gospel message. Forgiveness is very much a Christian word. Now, in this parable that we've read... Our Lord emphasizes this matter of forgiveness. That's his point. And he employs this debt metaphor. In fact, it starts with where we've read in verses 15 and following this, what we call this process of church discipline, but where there's one who has offended a brother in the church. And our Lord's instruction is you go to him and tell him his fault. And the object in all of this is to see him repent so that forgiveness may be granted. Now, in these, this section of verses, the word forgiveness does not appear. That's clearly what he's aiming at, and that is why Peter picks up in verse 21 and says, How often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? And in response to that question, then, Jesus tells this parable in the following verses through the end of the chapter. And it's a familiar story. A king decides to settle accounts with his servants and one is brought in and he owes, if you do the calculations and bring it up to date with inflation and everything, something over a billion dollars. I'll pay! Yeah, right. You're going to come up with that tomorrow. I'll pay! And the king says, well, we'll get what we can out of him. Sell him, sell his family into slavery. We'll get what we can. And the man pleads for mercy. And the king, frankly, forgives him of his entire debt. The servant then goes out and he calls into question a fellow servant who owes, again, with the inflation and all of that and calculating for our day, something like maybe three months' salary, something like that, at least a manageable debt. And he puts him in prison. He asks for mercy. I can pay you back. No, puts him in prison. And the king's servants are so disturbed at what they've seen that they tell the king. And the king is very angry about it, calls that first servant back into question and delivers him over to the torturers. Now, what's the point in all of this? Well, let's look at it in three steps. Number one, the goal of forgiveness. The goal of forgiveness Very quickly, the point here is the goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. Forgiveness aims at reconciliation. That's a point that Jesus brings out in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Reconciliation is clearly the goal in God's forgiveness of our sins. The first problem that I face as a sinner is that I have alienated myself from God. I've incurred his wrath. The fellowship has been broken. But the great blessing of the gospel is that by overcoming our sin in Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. And we have this great privilege above all privileges to be brought into fellowship with God through the forgiveness of sins. The goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. 
And so the Bible speaks very often of forgiveness, another metaphor of making peace. Making peace. Often there's that before and after contrast. You were once far off. Now you're brought near. We're brought from fear and anxiety to love and enjoyed experience of God's love for us. No longer are we at odds with God and at enmity with God, but we're friends with God and brought into fellowship with him. And the great message of the gospel is that God has offered terms of peace. He's offered forgiveness for those who repent of their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. And the new covenant promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people for I will forgive your sins. Your iniquities I will remember no more. The amazing thing about our God, the really amazing thing is that at this great God who, as Dr. Carson was telling us earlier, the God of aseity, who needs nothing, the God who is perfectly content in himself, perfectly sufficient in himself, this God even against whom we have sinned, the one who is offended, the God who is perfectly content in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit, the God before whom we have no leverage. We have nothing to bring to the table. The God who doesn't need us. This God somehow has found it in his heart to open himself up and bring sinners into fellowship with himself. And our Lord is simply saying here then that in the kingdom of God, forgiveness is a dominant note. And not only in terms of your relationship with God, but in terms of your relationship with one another as well. And what you're after in all of that is reconciliation, restoration, to heal the rift. And so in verses 15 to 18 here, this process of what we call church discipline, the goal, the objective in it all is not to disfellowship the man, to shun him. Now, of course, we're willing to go the distance in order to protect the, preserve the purity of the gospel and the testimony of Christ and all of these reasons. We're willing to go that distance, but that's not our first goal in all of this. Our first goal in this procedure that he gives us is to gain our brother. And so our Lord does not say, if your brother offends you, stand up in prayer meeting and ask prayer for him that God will grant repentance. Nor does he say, go and make him pay for it. Nor does he say, try to get even. He doesn't say, humiliate him, make him feel it. He says, go and tell him his fault. Deal with the offense. Tell him his sin. Why? For the sheer pleasure and reward of gaining a brother. Reconciliation. Not for revenge, not to get satisfaction, but for restoration. And this, Jesus says, is what it is like in my kingdom. My subjects seek reconciliation even at the cost of forgiveness. That brings us to our second point, the cost of forgiveness. Now, you might think that's an odd word to use in the discussion of forgiveness. By the nature of the case, there is no cost in forgiveness, right? Isn't the whole point here is that God doesn't make me pay? 
And of course, that's one point of view. That's the point of view of this servant who came before the king owing this great debt and pleading for mercy and patience from the king. The king just frankly forgave the debt and the man's free, free from the debt and doesn't have to pay. And of course, that's one glorious point of view. But there's another point of view in this parable, and that's the point of view of the king. And when in verse 27 we read, the king forgave the debt, the king forgave the debt, we're left to see that the king had to absorb the loss himself. In effect, the king had to pay the debt himself. I'm sure you've heard the expression, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Now let me be clear before I go any further with that. If you would like to take me out for lunch, I would be happy to say that I got a free lunch. I won't object to that at all. But you understand the point of the the saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It may be free to you, but someone had to pay for it. No such thing as a free lunch. When I was in undergraduate work, My parents establish an account with the university, and each semester, my parents were charged a certain amount for whatever the cost for room, board, and tuition, and all of that. All summer long, I would work to pay it off. All through the school year, I'd work and do what I could, and I'd pay my parents back, and little by little. My mom kept this long-running account of the bill so that we could keep track of it all and know when I'm done paying. I got married after my junior year, undergraduate, and then for another, that senior year, and then another year for graduate work there, I continued the same school. My parents had this set up, so they continued with the same arrangement. And every month, I'm sending my parents money to pay off this bill. I think it was the first Christmas. It, well, I guess it would have been the second Christmas that we were married. We went home to see the folks for Christmas, and Christmas was always just a big, big deal at our house and the whole family gets together. It's just lots of fun. We get around the tree, and the number of presents are ridiculous. And we just love giving to one another, and we, we just have a great time. We have devotions. Dad would usually give an exposition from the scriptures at some point. We'd pray, share testimonies, and then we'd get into exchanging gifts. And we got all through exchanging these gifts this year. And not until then did I notice sitting on the tree, there's an envelope, and it said, to Fred, from Dad and Mom. And so Dad takes it off the tree and gives it to me, and I open up the envelope, and here I see this long ledger. How much borrowed, how much paid, how much paid, how much paid, how much borrowed again, how much paid, how much paid. And it got down to the bottom, and here's the total that I still owe. And in great big red letters, it's written, paid in full. That was a good Christmas. Now, what do you think? Did the debt get paid? School bill get paid? Yeah, it got paid. I didn't pay it. My parents forgave the debt. And in forgiving the debt, had to make payment themselves. And this brings us to our point here. Forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness is this. Forgiveness demands substitutional payment of the debt. And this truly brings us to the very heart of the heart of the gospel. 
The gospel is not good news of a groundless forgiveness. The gospel does not come come to us saying that God will forgive us by decree, by fiat, that God will just say, never mind, it's okay. God will never save anyone by sidestepping his justice. And the gospel does not come to us like that at all. But the whole heart and soul of the gospel is to say, here is the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ, that he came to stand in the sinner's place and bear the curse of our sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He's blotted out the handwriting of ordinances against, that was against us. Took it out of the way. How? Nailing it to his The gospel is not good news of a groundless forgiveness. And God has never surrendered his justice in forgiving anyone their sins. And we are not left in the gospel to wonder, how is it a holy God could forgive our sins? But the whole heart and soul of the gospel is that God has sent a Savior, his only Son, amazingly, who stood in the place of sinners, to bear their sin and absorb the cost himself and render payment in full. You may remember the little chorus that was popular in churches some years ago. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. This is the blasphemy of all of those self-help approaches to God. We could turn over a new leaf and do better. We could turn over a new leaf, let's say, and do perfectly well from here on. That does not make payment for the sins that we owe. We could plead with God all we like, be patient with me and I'll pay, like the man in this parable but we could never make payment for that sin. Each of us, and this is surely the point, each of us stands before God with an incalculable, unpayable debt. The glad announcement of the gospel is that God has come to the rescue. God has sent his son, the Lord from heaven, coming to take the sinner's place. And in our place, he paid the bill in full absorbing our wrath, enduring our curse, paying the debt of our sin. And so the great debt of our sin has been forgiven us, but only because God in grace has paid the debt himself. Do you see here what our Lord is doing then? He is holding up his cross as a model to govern the relationships of the people in his kingdom. If he repents, Jesus says, pay the debt yourself. Absorb the loss. Forgive him. 
person slanders you, harms your reputation, some people. Oh, yes, there may be some ways in which he can and therefore should try to make amends and try to help and make up in all of that. But at the end of the day, to forgive him, we have to absorb the loss and make payment ourselves, voluntarily accept the consequences of his sin against us. We say things like, well, I'll forgive him, but I'll never forget it. And what we mean, of course, is that I'll try to get along, but I will never forgive him. Forgiveness demands substitutional payment of the debt. Number three, the demand of forgiveness. The demand of forgiveness. And the very simple point that our Lord makes here is that forgiveness demands yet more forgiveness. Peter asks Jesus in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now it seems here that Peter is trying at least to be gracious. There's some evidence that the rabbis of the day had taught that you should forgive at least three times, up to three times. Peter here is doubling that, adding one, it's pretty safe. Seven times? Is that enough? But he reflects, I think, what we all feel toward that brother who offends us repeatedly. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to forgive. How long do I have to keep this up? And he seems here still to be treating forgiveness as though it were some kind of a commodity that could be measured out, could be weighed and measured as if there were certain well-defined limits to forgiveness. And when our Lord answers Peter here in the end of verse 22 and says, I, I say to you, not seven times, but depending on your translation here, 77 times or 70 times 7? Immediately we recognize that our Lord here is not setting a still higher limit on forgiveness. He's not saying that you can measure it out a lot more than that and then forget it. What he is saying is that there to be no limits on forgiveness that you give to your brother. There's no measure to this. You keep on forgiving. He offends you. He repents. Forgive him. Absorb the loss. And that, of course, is the point of this servant with the unpayable debt. And again, the gospel is the model. How would you be if God had limits on forgiveness? What number could God put on it? All right, I'll forgive you, God says. But only seven times. How you doing? 77 times? 490 times? What number can you come up with? 
What we need in order to be saved is full pardon for all of our sins. What we need is a Savior who can make full payment for all of our sins. What we need in order to be saved is for God to come up to us right at the start and say, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter who you are, come to Jesus. He's the Savior of sinners and you may be saved and pardoned from all of your sins. That's what we need and that is exactly the gospel that we embrace. And this, our Lord says, is what I require of you. There must be no end to the forgiveness that you are willing to grant your brother who repents from his offense. No limit to the debt that you are willing to absorb. We want so quickly to say, that's the last straw. Or maybe even, I'll never forget this. Someone sins against you. Someone sins against someone you love and then repents. And there is within you that gnawing desire still make them pay. Well, I can't make him pay altogether, but I can sure make him feel it. Cold shoulder. Snub him. Rub his nose in it a little. Get what you can out of him. And Jesus here says, you will do for him exactly as I have done for you. You'll pay, it, pay the debt yourself. Let him go. Be reconciled to your brother. Of course, that is the whole point of this last part of the parable, verses 28 through 35. This servant who has been forgiven an incalculable debt goes out and calls into question a peer. Now, he was called into question by a superior, but now he goes out and calls into question just a peer who owes not an incalculable debt, and surely that's the point here in these figures that are given. It's not to draw close mathematical differences and all of that. It is simply to show that in the one case, there was an incalculable or an unpayable debt. In the other case, a debt that's at least manageable. And he goes out to his fellow servant who owes him a manageable debt and has no patience with him, whatever, and puts him in prison. When the forgiving king heard the news, he took his servant and delivered him over to the torturers. And notice the point here. The point, the guilt that this servant had is not simply that needing mercy, he refused to show mercy. The point is, having asked for and received mercy, he refused to show mercy. That's what rendered him so guilty. Having been forgiven an enormous debt, he would not be forgiving of others who owed a much lesser debt. You can
can imagine, I think we can all imagine very easily, the emotion that this first servant must have felt, called into question by the king and caught, owing a billion dollars. Maybe he was a governor of one of the territories or something. But he'd squandered the money, and it's gone. And he's called into question, and here he thinks, oh, no, I'm a goner. Oh, no, I'm going to be sold into slavery. Oh, no, my wife and children are going to be sold into slavery. It has all come down around him. And the king has pity and frankly forgives him of all of the debt. You can just imagine the emotion. It must have reduced him to tears. And he goes out and he forgets it all. He calls his fellow servant into question and turns him over to the, to the uh, puts him into prison. And the king, calling him into question, notice what he says. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. But of course, in a parable, as in all of the parables, the point has nothing to do with the characters themselves. It has to do with us. And our Lord is telling us here very simply that when compared to the immeasurable debt that we have been forgiven, how small, really, is that debt that our brother owes us? When compared with the number and the magnitude of our sins against God, how little, how insignificant, really, are our brother's sins against us. We might as well understand this very well here. Our Lord is not calling us to do something more than he has done for us. Surely we all know that the debts that we forgive are infinitely smaller than the debt that has been forgiven us. We have been forgiven so much more than we will ever forgive. And we all know, like this man in the parable, the joy of forgiveness, don't we? Many of you can remember the day of your conversion. You can remember that moment when God the Spirit bursts into your heart and there's this sense of full acceptance, full forgiveness of all of our sin. That weight of sin is gone. And yet we harbor grudges against our brother and we are bitter and slow to let go. And our Lord says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. We should see this very clearly here. Our Lord is not asking us here to renounce a right. Do you see that? Our Lord is not asking us here to renounce a right as though we had the option of taking the other route and exacting revenge on our brother, making him pay even after he's repented. He is telling us here 
that we have no right whatever to exercise in this matter because having asked for and accepted forgiveness, we have implicitly pledged ourselves to be forgiving to our brothers who have sinned against us. We forgive our brother. Don't think that you've earned extra points. That's your duty. On the way into this thing, we pledged this kingdom is about mercy. And the mercy that I have received is the mercy that I will display to my brother. This is the demand. Now, of course, there are so many other things to talk about in regards to repentance and forgiveness on this horizontal level, in this passage itself, repentance is presumed. And there are other questions that come up. Well, should my brother who has sinned against me make restitution in this case and in that case? Should there be restoration of loss? There's discussion for all of those kinds of factors in any given case. But at the end of the day, here's what our Lord is telling us. At the end of the day, we do not forgive because we feel like it. We do not forgive because enough of the conditions have been met. We do not forgive because, well, in this case, it's a small enough matter that I think I can get over it. We forgive because we have been forgiven an immeasurable debt. And in view of that, Forgiveness of my brother's sins against me is a comparatively very little thing. If we have experienced God's forgiveness, and if we understand anything at all, even a little of the astonishing wonder of God's grace and mercy in forgiving us, can this matter of forgiving others be a difficult thing? Let me ask it again. If we understand anything of the greatness of God's forgiveness and the enormity of the debt that has been forgiven us, can this matter of forgiving our brother really be a difficult thing? That is simply to say that one great incentive to continued fellowship with one another despite our mutual offenses, one great incentive to continued fellowship with one another is to recall frequently that we are a people who have been forgiven an immeasurable debt. And that is just another way of saying life in this kingdom thrives as it is gospel-centered. Jesus ends the parable with the words of verse 35. Sobering words so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. God is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of compassion. He is a God of mercy. A God of pity. And he forgives fully and freely. But 
he will not have unforgiving servants and subjects in his kingdom. His people are a people who have been shaped by the gospel that they have embraced. And so we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother his trespasses, my father will not forgive you. One of the Puritans said, he that demands forgiveness and shows none ruins the bridge over which he himself is to pass. Can we say it this way? In this kingdom, this is a wonderful thing, in this kingdom, forgiveness is the law of the land. On our way into the kingdom, we pledged ourselves to deal with one another according to the mercy that has been shown us. Mercy that's shaped like a cross on which we, like our Lord, offer ourselves for the forgiveness and the restitution of our brother who has sinned against us. Remembering all the while that no matter how costly, however costly, this forgiveness is, it is nothing compared to the forgiveness that has been given us. And can I say it this way? That we show this mercy to one another, delighting in it all the while, as we recall how much we really do love this word, forgiven. Let's pray. Our Father, you have been so gracious to us. You have forgiven an an enormous, incalculable, unpayable debt. May we be gripped with the glory of that. May we be gripped with the greatness of our Redeemer to see what he has done for us and in our place. And may that shape the way we live with one another. For your glory, for your honor, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.